brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Happy days are here again, Higher Side Chatters from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood. And despite the capstone cabal's concerted effort to corral our consciousness into the mundane routine of work, traffic, and whatever the hell is on TV tonight, we know the world is a very weird place. Alien abduction, spirit summoning, cryptid encounters, remote viewing, MKUltra mind control, and even something like synchronicity can make one wonder, what is the deal with this reality? Well, it seems like we just might be entangled with an etheric plane that helps to make a lot more sense of some of this stuff, but it's a hard thing to detect and even harder to fully understand. But here to give us a lesson in life's high strangeness and detail some recent events and personal sinks in a way that gives us a great case study of this esoteric substrate to our system is the great Michael Wan. You might remember the last two times we talked to Mike, originally when he made a big splash with his work regarding Susquehanna River alchemy and the rituals and traditional events that take place along the river and how the esoteric power players use its potency and honor the river goddess for their own aims. And then he returned to break down even more aspects and examples of how the elite use the esoteric toolbox, including one hell of a hundred year cycle of computer technology from ENIAC to the Singularity as well as how the Thousand Oaks shooting related to the astrological conditions of its day and a breakdown of his potent and personal astrological starboard sessions for good measure. Today he plans to give us yet another blueprint for how magic and reality work using a string of recent events and their surrounding context that let us see a bit more clearly the ones and zeros of the Cosmic Code largely through the vector of Kobe Bryant's esoteric life and death and why it's so resonant with an in-bulk sacrifice. They say the universe runs on narrative and this is bound to be one hell of a story, so let's get into it. The Susquehanna sage himself, the esoteric cycle sleuth, and the etheric fabric educator Michael Wan. Welcome back, my good man. Greg, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here and I've been thinking about this, so it's really good on my end. And I got to say, you're so good at your setups. It hit on so many levels. And I want to respond to a couple things you said, because it ties in so perfectly on what we're going to talk about today. 
you began by like saying like it's getting stranger and stranger, right? Like the stories that are being presented in front of us, like, you know, how weird is it? And we also have to put in context with the fact that this year is literally 2020. I mean, the number is arbitrary, but because so many people subscribe to like, yeah, it's 2020, you know, it's got some depth to it. It's got a second nature reality. And from that, it's got weight. And just the very nature of our language, we know that it was designed for double entendre, was designed for words to have multiple meanings. So multiple pieces of information, whether conscious or not, is exchanged at the same time. And within our culture, 2020 has multiple meanings. And one of them is clear vision. This is the year of clear vision. The same people who invented our number system and gave us like this year, they're also the ones who are telling us that 2020 is when you see clearly. And we can go and look at all of the things that we've been talking about for so many years of like, you know, this is coming around the corner. This is coming around the corner. And we're seeing like, before our eyes, like everything from 5G is going to roll out nationwide. And Elon Musk says the Neuralink is going to become commercially viable this year. You know, we're seeing all of this very, very real material like, okay, there's a shift this year. And if it's happening on one level, like this material, we're seeing the 5G and we're seeing all of that, it's going to be mirrored in another level as well. And it's the level where the 2020 has multiple meanings. And so that is the clarity which I think we're beginning to step into. As we're seeing more and more of the strangeness, you know, strange is relative. We're getting a better focus and we're beginning to understand more so the structure of not necessarily, well, I guess both the nature of reality, but then also of the crafted reality, the cultural reality, you know, the magic, which we're all kind of like living in and watching through our computer boxes. We're like, okay, this is how it was done. And so the timing is perfect. Mm, yes, man. Well said. It seems that this is the way reality has always run, but maybe our awareness of it is increasing, which makes it feel like something out there has changed, but it's really just that our awareness has had a shift. But it is a process, and it can be a bit hard for people to really grasp the magical worldview overall and how events can be so esoterically connected. But I think the most helpful thing is to just keep examining examples until it makes sense, rather than trying to jump right in and get a handle on the wider, broader, big picture, which can be a bit more difficult. And so that is what we're going to do today, as we've been saying. Now, how would you tee this up? You mentioned to me that the goal is to demonstrate that we have this etheric fabric or an etheric network, as you've been saying, a web that connects events on our plane, similar to how neuropathways of the brain work. And that is really interesting, and it's pretty crucial to understand for today. So can you elaborate on that a little more just to get us going here? Yes, yes, okay. I'm going to tell three different stories, three different narratives, and we're going to see how they all connect. And one of them is going to be the Kobe Bryant story. And that in itself is going to be like, you know, for those of us who like kind of the whiz bang of the stories and seeing like all the synchronicities, like, you know, that's going to be there. But what I did not want to occur was that it would turn into like infotainment. 
And we've been kind of conditioned for that. You know, that's what culture, by giving us all of this really, really fun and interesting things, we're going on to the next faster and faster. And I don't want this to be necessarily just like one sort of hop on this never satisfying quest for like, oh, what's the latest novel thing? What I want to really be able to express clearly, and as you said in the beginning, when we were talking beforehand, which I'm experiencing it very strongly, and I'm seeing it on your end too, like this Mercury retrograde, it seems to be particularly strong, you know, in novel ways, but you know, that's what we're seeing. So I'm going to do my best to paint a very clear picture of what these three stories is a reflection of. And that's what I think is really going to be significant. And so what these three storylines are, and the term I want to use for them are etheric threads or etheric pathways. And it is a term which is kind of played on the idea of neural pathways and to really understand what we're looking at from the etheric level, we want to first look at this neural level because that is something which is much more tangible. We can understand that. And then through recognizing just the whole fractal nature of reality and applying the as above, so below sort of axiom where we can extrapolate what we see is true on one level and apply it on the greater level. For the neural pathways, they happen with inside our body, with inside our brain. And they are, if you think about it, the microcosm. They're happening within us. And so what we have to go in and recognize that is if there's a microcosm level, there has to be a macrocosm level as well. And that could go on ad infinity, you know, as high up and or as low down as you want. But the next level up, that means that the same way which neural pathways work within our own physical structure, we must be a part of a greater sort of similar type of pathway on a similar type of model or structure. And so we can see both the microcosm and the macrocosm. And what I mean by that is because we're always in these situations. So if you're ever stuck in a traffic jam, when you're in your car and you're going through like whatever it is that's going on within your system, you know, maybe you're going to be late for a meeting or you got a plane to catch. And that's all of your microcosm of experience of this traffic jam. And it's within this car, but you're actually part of something much larger. You know, you're part of the traffic jam. And so what we are as individuals is we are this kind of intersection point between this microcosm and macrocosm. And it's happening all the time in all of these different sort of ways. And so I want to go and show how we tie into how this neuro pathway ties into this etheric pathway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, I'm psyched. Let me go down a little bit deeper with the neuro pathway. So the neural pathways, they happen with inside the brain. They are a chain of brain cells where signals are sent across. And there is a correlation between when a neural pathway fires and particular behaviors and or thoughts. And really strong established neural pathways, they become habitual or unconscious. We don't even realize we're doing them. Hypnosis is based upon this and PTSD and like MK Ultra, they're all dealing with 
neural pathways and establishing new neural pathways. When you hear rewiring the brain, anything which is kind of self-improvement, we're talking about neural pathways. And the very nature of the neural pathway is it's a real thing, but it's not a real thing. It's like it's inside you, but it's not like a specific thing. It's not like an organ, like your heart or your liver, but it's in the brain. And it has this correlation between something that's happening inside and you can't feel it and you can't see it. But if you have enough awareness, when you catch yourself in certain types of unconscious habitual actions, that is the expression of a neural pathway in action. And the other thing which I want to point out about neural pathways is they are not our true nature. Our true nature or our first nature is the way we are. And then we have experience in life and we adapt to that, whatever that may be and whatever our adaptive style is. And what becomes is our second nature. We begin to go and do things based upon an actual experience, but they become so ingrained into how we interact with the world, with reality, with ourselves, that we don't even realize we are doing it. So it becomes a second nature. So etheric pathways are the same sort of thing. Like they are these engraved pathways on the etheric plane, you know, whatever we want to call it, this plane of reality, which we don't really see or feel, but we can see the effects and we can see how we are interacting with it. And this just happens naturally. And this is the same plane of reality where archetypes are forms. This is the same plane of reality where the golden ratio or the phi ratio exists. And we see the phi ratio in experience and we see archetypes in certain sorts of behaviors, but the form exists somewhere. And it is on this same plane where these etheric pathways are created. And in the same way that the neural pathway happens from like an experience, and the experience can be something which is like a habit you've created yourself. It could be a response to a trauma. It could be from hypnosis. There are all these ways which these pathways are established, and some are going to be more effective or stronger than the others. The same is true on the etheric plane. And I'm going to suggest to you that when magic happens, and magic is happening all the time, and in my opinion, the definition of magic truly is the interaction which we have with the etheric plane, there are certain types of magics which are more effective in terms of laying forms upon the plane. Mm. And so we see that with, let's say, ceremonial magic. We can look at it from both the chanting or the rituals or whatever the detail, the symbols would be, that there is a strength in that. And then within all of the different disciplines that work on this level, you know, they everything has its own unique fingerprint. And so what we're going to talk about today are looking at these pathways that have been established, and we're going to see how they're established by magic or we're going to see how they at least tie into magical institutions. And we're going to see that it actually all ties down into arguably the granddaddy of all the magics, at least in the Western world, and that's the Kabbalah. And we're going to see it in a very, very material and understandable and topical way. Mm -hmm. I love it. 
Are we ready to begin? That was that was the preface. I hope that you know <laughs> I didn't lose <laughs> anyone there. No, I, I know, man. It's dense stuff and time does fly, but I think that's a great analogy. We've all seen animations of brains and neuropathways and the little lights going down the lines, and it makes sense that there could be an etheric web of the universe that would have a similar shape at a larger scale with world events rather than the thoughts and behaviors of the individual. And, of course, we have directed and undirected thoughts and behaviors. Some of it's conscious, some of it's unconscious. You will have thoughts. You will have actions. Did you put intention behind it or not? And you could see that scaling up to this etheric network as well, that you could put conscious attention with magic into welling up energy around certain events, or they can just happen. But things will happen regardless. And uh, I just like the analogy. But yes, I know we got a lot to get into, so if we're going to try to dive into this, I guess we should start with uh, Kobe's history, right? Actually, I'm going to work up to Kobe. I'm going to go with where it begins, and this is where the anchor point is. There's always an anchor, anchor in hypnosis, anchor in all this sort of stuff. And so we're going to begin on April 4th, 1991. And on that day, there was another helicopter crash, a national story which shook the nation. Maybe not in the same degree as the Kobe one, but this event was major because it dealt with the death of another public figure. And this was John Hines. And this is the same Hines family, which is the ketchup family, the condiment family, he is an heir within this family. And he was a U.S. senator. And so he died on April 4th, which if we go and we look historically, that has a history of events occurring. And it also has numerological or magical sort of context. And we're going to link John Hines to skull and bones, and we're linking it in three different ways. So the first thing is John Hines is the third generation of the Hines family fortune. And within this lineage, I think right now we're on the fourth generation of men who graduated from Yale University. Mm. And... I can't say for certain, and John Hines is one of them. I don't know about the first Hines. I do not know about John Hines. He's actually John Hines III or his son. They all went to Yale, but the grandfather, the grandfather of the youngest and the father of the U.S. senator who died, he is a known bonesman. And so very possible all of them are bonesmen because it's intergenerational. But even if he's not, we have a very strong connection to Skull and Bones. And we all know about the influence which Skull and Bones or Skull and Bones members have had within our very real reality. And we also have to keep in mind, at any given time, there's probably no more than 500 living Skull and Bones members at any given time. We know that because, just like the numbers, there are only so many people in the fraternity at a certain time, and you just extrapolate that. So that's our first Skull and Bones connection. Our second one is the fact that after John Hines dies, his wife remarries. And who does she remarry? Skull and Bonesman John Carey. So now we have our second very personal connection to Skull and Bones. And now we're going to have our third connection. 
And so what happened on April 4th, 1991 was a shock to the nation because it was a senator. But then on the very next day, on April 5th, there was another air disaster, and this was a plane crash. And this also involved the death of a U.S. senator, and this was John Tower. And so I want to read this right now and show you who these guys link to. This is from an article which I found online, which was written around the early 90s. Even more intriguing is the fact that John Hines chaired a three-man presidential review board that probed the Iran-Contra affair and had in his possession all the damning documents from that sordid affair, while John Tower led the infamous Tower Commission that investigated a variety of different CIA criminal activities and dirty dealings. Coincidentally, both John Hines and John Tower died in plane wrecks on successive days in 1991. Once again, I must ask, what are the odds of such an occurrence, especially when both men had close ties to George Bush Sr., who was the former CIA director in the mid-70s? Did both of these men uncover information that they refused to keep silent about any longer? So this author is tying together that both of these men were involved with the revealing of this Iran-Contra affair, this big scandal which affected George Bush Sr. in the late 80s and early 90s. And as we all know, George Bush Sr. is skull and bones. So now we have three connections with Skull and Bones, possibly even four with John Hines himself. And I'm going to suggest at the very least that if, and there is a precedent that seems to be that George Bush Sr. is involved with many assassinations, but if there's going to be an assassination which happens on someone within the same fraternity, it's going to, you know, probably like the mafia, you got to get approval first, so you have to do it in the right way. And I think one of the signs of that is going to be the 4-4. And particularly when we know that George Bush Sr., his son, was known as number 44, and he also was skull and bones, and he happened to be of the same class, or he was tied to John Kerry because they ran against each other. So we see this tight web of skull and bones all around this mishap, this event. So now I want to read this quote, and this is from an article written by Chris Heimbichner. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly, and he's written many books on the skull and bones, and this is from an article called The Kabbalah of the Cryptocracy. And it says, the powerful skull and bones order is both Masonic in its death imagery a datum which is known by its quintessentially Kabbalistic, an important fact currently concealed. So it's saying that skull and bones at its essence is Kabbalistic. And so what we have here and what I want to point out is we have a connection between skull and bones, between Kabbalistic magic and what appears to be both ritualistic and an assassination at the very least. We've got that going on. 
So that's one line. I'm going to say that is just by its very nature, because it's magic oriented, it is an etheric thread. And when the threads intersect, we begin to have what's known as a fabric. That's the terminology used in the neural realm. And it's also what we're seeing right now on the etheric realm, because we're going to now cross that line. So that's one etheric thread. And we cross that line at the nodal point of where the crash happened. And where that crash happened was Lower Marion Township, Pennsylvania. This is a suburb of Philadelphia. And if any of the listeners are familiar with what has been going on with the Kobe Bryant story, we all know that he began his mythic tale of sports greatness as being a standout high school athlete. And where did Kobe Bryant go to school but Lower Marion High School. Mm. Okay. And so not only was there a John Hines helicopter crash in Lower Marion Township, it happened midair. And it happened on top of an elementary school. And this is one of the reasons why the nation was so shocked because of the horrifying effect of what really happened. What happened was his helicopter was having a landing gear malfunction and a plane went to fly underneath it to see if they can see what would happen. And they bumped and they had a midair collision and the wreckage fell on an elementary school. It fell on an elementary school called Marion Elementary School, which is less than a mile away from Lower Marion High School. And if you read the articles of the day, and as it describes the horror of the event, it says, and this is a quote from a seven-year-old girl, one went everywhere talking about the crashes, and a piece fell in the boys' basketball game, and one blew up in the sky. And so this was a part of the story which was circulated throughout the time in all the newspapers and news stories linking in this idea of helicopter crashes, horror, emotion, lower Marion, and basketball. So that was 1991. So now we're going to pick up the Kobe Bryant tale. And the Kobe Bryant tale really begins with his father. And his father was a professional basketball player as well. His name was Joe Bryant. And he went by the name of Jelly Bean. I think that's a great nickname. <laughs> so Jelly Bean, he played a couple of years in the NBA and he could no longer really compete at that level. And what happens a lot of times when athletes can no longer compete in the NBA or in some of the professional leagues, they go to other countries' professional leagues, which aren't quite as, you know, they're not at the peak of the umbrella in terms of elite sports, but it's still like you get to do the thing you excel at, you live a pretty good life. And so Jellybean went to Italy and that's where Kobe was raised or he spent a lot of his childhood. He was raised in Italy or at least during the basketball season. And he had a very interesting life, uncommon for most people born in America to actually live in two different countries during raised. And so he was influenced by two different cultures. And so the reason I want to first bring up his father is because his father named Kobe. You know, I'm saying, I'm stating the obvious. And if you 
you look at two things, one within the magical tradition, and I'm not necessarily saying that this was done magically, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, at least conscious magically, but within the magic tradition, it is always said that the person who names something, there's a great power, or there's a power relationship between the two. This is true with any parent that names their child. But the story behind Kobe's name is rather significant in our tale. And so Joe Bryant, Jellybean, names Kobe, specifically spelled K-O-B-E, and it says clearly, after the beef. And I don't know if he was going to name him Kobe beforehand. He just liked the spelling. But he and his wife, they said that they saw on a menu the word Kobe beef, and they just liked it. And then that's what they named their son. Hmm. So this is the man he names his son Kobe. This is going to make sense in a moment. So Jelly Bean retires and he wants to move into coaching. Currently, he coaches at the professional level, female professional basketball. And his very first coaching gig, once he retired as a player, was back in the Philadelphia area. And he's from the Philadelphia area. So I guess it makes sense. Like, you know, he probably was looking close to where he knows. And he is hired to be the girls varsity coach at what is known as Akiba Hebrew Academy. And it is a pluralistic Jewish private school located in Lower Marion Township outside of Philadelphia. And now we wanna delve in a little bit deeper into this. And we're looking at this mostly from a etheric symbolic perspective. I'm not necessarily saying like this was all done consciously, but I am saying this is what has happened. The father goes to coach at Akiba Academy, which is a couple miles away from the high school, which Kobe then goes plays at, which is a mile away from the elementary school. They're all about five miles from each other, and they're all connected by something which is known as the main line, Route 30. And so Akiba is a very significant school in the fact that it is the first of its type in America and was founded by a very significant individual within Jewish culture in America. Let me see if I can find this right there. The guy's name, I believe, is Simon Greenberg. And so Simon Greenberg, after he founds, he starts this school, he eventually becomes the first president of the American Jewish University. And then he becomes the chairman of the World Zionist Organization. And the reason why I'm bringing these three things to the surface is I'm showing that this is an individual who carries a lot of energy. His ability to affect life on earth, like, you know, this is an effective individual. And all effective individuals, they've got a certain quality to them. This is why they're effective and other people aren't. For whatever reason why, they carry something. And I'm saying this guy carries something. And so when he started this school, this Akiba Academy, he named it after a very, very significant rabbi in Jewish history. And this was a rabbi whose name is Rabbi Akiva. And he was around 2,000 years ago is when he lived. And he was known as a great teacher, which makes sense why you would name a school after a great teacher. 
but he was also known very, very specifically. He is tied to a book which is very significant to the Kabbalah. The book which he's tied to is known as Sefer Yetzirah. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it is the foundational text for really explaining and understanding the Kabbalah, at least as it can be explained in book form. And this book is called The Book of Formation, and it's all about magic, and it explains magic and creation. And the book is filled with all sorts of warnings. And so this rabbi, who the school is named after, is energetically completely connected to this idea of the most fundamental understanding or teaching of Kabbalah. And so now remember, we have this cross-reference point with Skull and Bones, which is a magical order, which is based upon Kabbalah. And we see that this school is anchored in the same physical location as this crash site, Lower Merion. And we see that there is this intersection point with Kobe Bryant and then even more specifically with his father. And you could even read when you, you go to Wikipedia and you read about the school, it says how Kobe, when the Bryant family moved to Lower Marion from Italy, it was right when Kobe started his high school career. This is when he was introduced to the world, if you will, or at least to the United States as a basketball phenom because he goes on to be one of the greatest high school and then greatest professional basketball players to ever play the game. And so this is where the seed is planted. All of this stuff is coming together. So now we're going to go one step deeper. So within this book of formation, within this text, which this rabbi, which the school is named after, which was then named by this very, very effective, powerful man within the Jewish movement within the United States or really throughout Israel or throughout the world, even if he was the leader of the world Zionist movement. This book, there's a, it's a very complex book. And so I'm going to read this line, which describes it. It says, the Kabbalist viewed it, the book, as a deeply mystical work whose hidden potency is best summed up by an incident found in the Talmud itself. And this is the quote from the Talmud. And this is what it says the book is all about. Rav Chinania and Rav Ashaya, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, would sit every Friday and study Safir Yetzirah and a third calf, and then it has third in quotation marks, which has attained a third of its maturity and was considered the most savory, would be created for them and they would eat it in the honor of the Sabbath. Okay? So remember, Kobe is named for Kobe Beef. He was named by Jelly Bean, and Jelly Bean named him specifically for that beef. And what is Kobe Beef? But it is a delicacy valued for its flavor, its tenderness, and its savoriness. 
So now we have this strange intersection between not only is it this school, which I don't know if they teach Kabbalah there or not. Like, I don't know what's being taught there. I don't know if they teach the magic of Kabbalah, but regardless if they don't, we have this intersection with this individual on the etheric plane in the same place of where we have this cross section with the skull and bones etheric line. We have this very, very strong Kabbalistic connection. Man. <laughs> so now let's continue on with Kobe and his arc. He had an extraordinary life, both in terms of the amount of attention that was placed upon and in the field which he exhibited his livelihood. He did it better than few people have ever done before. It was basketball, yes, but he was able to, within that arena, he was able to showcase something which few have done. It was extraordinary. And Kobe was a magic guy. We're talking like symbolically, like, you know, he's at a place which, you know, may or may not have to do with magic. You know, it's like on a deeper level. Yes. But I don't know if that's what they're teaching. I'm not suggesting that Jelly Bean was a magician. I'm not suggesting anything. But if you actually go and you look at Kobe and what he did after his professional career, it is quite evident that Kobe lived a magical life. And the reason I say that is because he started a company after he retired and it was a content creation company. I believe that's what they call it. And if you're interested in this, my friend Isaac I learned all this from listening to this podcast, Illuminati Watcher, which they go into this really deeply. So it answered a lot of questions. He tied this link and Kobe is tied to all of these books, which are focused at a young adult crowd. And it basically uses these stories of how children can go use magic and magical thinking in their everyday lives. Very similar to what we see with Harry Potter. So I want to read a couple different summaries of the books, which he had published of how they're described on the back cover. The first one says, Reggie is willing to train tirelessly to improve his game, but the gym itself seems to be working against him in magical ways. Before Reggie can become the player of her dreams, he must survive the extraordinary trials of practice. I just realized that they're playing with masculine and feminine pronouns there. Basketball right. legend Kobe Bryant, and this is like taken straight from the back cover. Basketball legend Kobe Bryant presents this illuminating follow-up to the number one times bestseller, The Wizenard Series Training Camp, a story of strain and sacrifice, supernatural breakthroughs, and supreme dedication to the game. Here's another description. Epoca. Island of the Gods takes place at the most elite sports academy in the land where the best child athletes are sent to hone their skills. When Rovi and Patia arrive, each harboring a secret about themselves, they begin to suspect that something evil is at play at the school. In the course of their first year, they must learn to master their grana in order to save the world from dark forces that are rising. So this is the level of consciousness which Kobe Bryant as an individual lived. This is what he created and he put his name to after his basketball career. The guy could have done anything he wanted. 
And that's what he wanted to do. Right. Even the cover of the book is like the cover of this book, Epoca, that you sent me. It is a tree that is split into a mirrored image of as above, so below. It's very clear he's knowledgeable about this stuff. The whole book series. I mean, that's why I was like pointing to the other podcasting. Like, they go like a full hour into it. We're talking two sentences. This guy like goes deep and it's a very consistent message of very well-established magical practices. Right. And the only other detail I wanted to throw in there too is one of these other lines you had sent me about the book, a summary from the back is, when a new coach named Rolabi Wizenard arrives on the first day of training camp, the Badgers can't explain the magical seeming things that happen around them. Each player experiences unique visions that challenge what they know about their lives on and off the court. I mean, even that name, Rolabi Wizenard, it's very close to rabbi. Yeah. <laughs> rabbi wizard, you know. You're 100% correct. And it spills over elsewhere, like the significance that magic plays within Kobe's life. So this is an article from businessinsider.com. And I'm going to read two different parts of the article, and then I'm going to hit you with a whammy. So it goes, Bryant whose love of the game dates back to his youth, began his basketball career wearing first number 24, then number 33 in high school. When he was traded to the Lakers in 1996, neither of those numbers were an option. And so this article is all about the retiring of Kobe's numbers. And so here's the second part. So it says, so Bryant picked number eight, which he wore for the first half of his career. That choice was a tipping of the hat to the number he wore while he lived in Italy, as well as 143 from Adidas ABCD camp, ESPN reported. The three digits added up to eight. So like numerology and number magic is obviously very significant to Kobe. That was part of his life. Now here's the whammy. Remember it said he wore two different numbers in high school, number 24 and 33. And so Heinz is related to a number. Heinz has a very strong link to a number, arguably more than any family that you can think of in America. You can tie them to a number. And that's number 57 because Heinz as a company, their slogan was 57 varieties. Right. <laughs> okay. Number 24, number 33. Am together. They're 57. Damn. Maybe that was done on purpose. I don't think so. But what I think it was done was this is a reflection of the etheric pathways. And because Skull and Bones is such a strong group of magicians, and the reason why we know that is we can see what they have accomplished. The world has bended to their will. And so the proof is in the pudding. And we know that it is based upon a Kabbalistic approach. And we see that in the same place that it, one of their sacrificial deaths, and it's a death head cult, also intersects with a very, very strong tie to Kabbalistic magic. And we see arguably the most significant connection to that area, at least known in the collective consciousness, he also was a magical guy. So now let's go to his death. Now, I'm not saying this has happened, and I want to be respectful because this was an individual who affected people in their lives, and you want to be respectful of people's emotional world. So when I talk about like Kobe and his death, obviously 
in the highest respect and honor. But that being said, he is a public figure and that is open to this type of analytical sort of stuff, which we're doing right now. So Kobe's death, there's a possibility he didn't even die because there's a strong linkage of stage deaths within this particular group of people and this particular type of magic and within contemporary culture like Tupac and stuff like that. There may be something there, maybe there's not, but I just did want to throw that out there. But that being said, his death does have some interesting markers. So the first one is the fact that, you know, it happened on the day of the Grammys. Always when we see these award shows, there is an elemental quality of ritual and often ritual magic. And we also know that Kobe's death was an extraordinary death. He didn't die in his sleep. He died in a horrific and very graphic, like you can read that story and it's going to create an image in people's minds when they hear of a helicopter crash. Anyone who's flown, that idea has crossed their mind. And so that becomes more real. And so it has a strong magnetic quality on the imagination and it evokes all four elements. It evokes earth, fire, air, because it takes place in the air and water because it was caused by the fog. And we can kind of like juxtapose that to potentially another ritualistic death that occurred on the morning of the Grammys. And that was Whitney Houston, who died in extraordinary fashion, drowning in a bathtub, which also creates a very strong mental visual. But that is most obviously like a water and maybe a, an air type of elemental, which was being evoked. The Kobe's one was even more intense because it evoked more elements. The third thing which is interesting about the timing of his death is it happened on the 26th. And so this isn't exactly like, you know, a bullseye in terms of timing, but it is a lineup to one of the major key ritual dates, holidays. It's a day of significance. It's an objective day of significance because it has a objective quality to it. And it is the midpoint between the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year, and the spring equinox, a time where the day is balanced. And the midpoints and those four points are known as the calendar of the wheel. And many, 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 many traditions have used these points as holidays or holy days or ritual days. And so February 2nd, which is the midpoint, it corresponds with Imbolc. It corresponds to Condomas. It corresponds to St. Bridget's Day. It's got all sorts of different traditions, but they all fall in the same place because they're all dealing with the same sort of holy day. And it's also Groundhog's Day, which the National Groundhog's Day corresponds to the Susquehanna. But Imbolc is one of the names for this holiday as well. And it's a major holiday. And we see his death is lining up right before it. And the reason why I find that particularly interesting is because we also know about the significance of back masking. And this is the purposeful of putting things in backwards speech. And we see that most prominently has been done within the recording industry, which happens to be based primarily in Los Angeles and primarily back in the 60s and 70s was when it seems that backmasking was most common. And so if you backmask Imbolc, 
if you were to spell it backwards and try to speak it, it is clobe me. So it's not exactly like a bullseye to Kobe, but if you've ever heard back masking, it doesn't sound exactly the same. It sounds within that type of similarity of phonetics. And so what we see with the back masking is, and again, I'm not saying this was done purposely or consciously. What I'm saying is these are elemental points which kind of pulls a story into existence. Maybe in the same way, when you have a neural pathway, we are pulled into these behaviors. And when we are stepped into maybe a larger pathway, we're pulled into things that happen. And so when we see this Kobe tail intersect with the skull and bones tail, it becomes larger than life once it becomes a lattice. It becomes even greater than the individual strand itself. There begins to become a structure. Yes. And even stack on the fact that he was anointed as the sacrificial calf, which is the name Kobe and how that references back to that book and the school. It is a tangled web, but it is stacking up to be quite potent. It's stacking up to be quite potent. And so another one of those holidays. It's also known as St. Bridget's Day. St. Bridget's all about the sacred cow. And so <laughs> there's an element of sacrifice like built into his naming and built into like that story. And so however these things happen, like this is stacked up. And on the very least and the most rational is on this etheric plane, like that's where it exists. Not everything in the etheric plane manifests in material reality, but the things that do tend to be particularly charged. And we can see this is surrounded by particularly charged individuals. Yes. Yeah, so this is obviously a, a whole lot of stuff and it definitely all seems quite clear when you add it up. And there is one other element to this in-bulk sacrifice, the idea that it's tied into Bridget's Day and this ancient feast day that is involved with cows. And it is quite dark when you get into this particular slide, but you have something on here that says satanic cult awareness and then some more details. Tell us about this because what you circled on here is really eerie when you factor in the fact that which everyone talks about, Kobe died with his daughter. Ah, uh, wow. Okay. So I want to give a caveat. I mean, when you do this type of research, one of the things which I hope is becoming clear is like how everything connects. And like by delving into this sort of research, I'm saying this is like, you know, me being an individual and as a human being, you're delving into it and you're connecting with it etheric. And this is some dark stuff. And I'm giving people warnings. So I'm going to share with you some of the things which I found. I'm giving you a heads up if you want to do your own research. Like it really does, it affects you. So be forewarned. But there is an element where this does get kind of dark. So there's a document which you can go find. I found it on the FBI website. So it's like a publicly accessible and like maybe not stamp of approval, but this was from, I believe, one of their training documents. And this probably came out, oh, it came out in 1993, January 27th, 1993. How interesting because <laughs> that's time date stamped on it. Can you see that, Greg? Yes. One day after the death of Kobe and the anniversary of this other crash or two crashes we're talking about. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So you mentioned Kobe Bryant 
and his daughter's death as well. Well, the second death that happened back in 91, first was John Hyde's the third, and the second one was John Tower. And the John Tower death, he died with his daughter as well. And so where we're going with this satanic occult awareness document, which I found on the FBI website, it was part of their training to teach investigators more insight into how satanic cults operate. And this is their training guide. And at the time, this was a big deal. This goes along with what is now known as the satanic panic time of our history. But in this document, it gives a list of key dates because it says very clearly that, you know, the dates are very significant within the ritual aspects of these cults. And so I sent you the key dates. There, there are probably like a hundred of them. I mean, there's always a date seemingly going on. But January 26 is a key date. That is the date of Kobe's death. And that is the note on it is grand climax five weeks and one day after winter solar solstice. And it's known as the Damir, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, ritual. And it deals with the sacrifice of a female child. It deals with oral, anal, and vaginal sex. And its class is satanic. So it there's a differentiation between a satanic and occultic type of sacrifice. But it says that's what happens on the 26th. So then we go to February 2nd. Candlemas, Lady Day, Imbolc the welcoming of spring, satanic revels. And this deals with mass initiations. This is why we see big events happening then. Animal and human sacrifice, again, female between 1 and 17. And again, this falls underneath the both occult and satanic type of sacrifice. And so we can see that there's a precedent. And again, I'm not saying that's what happened, but we're looking at this as a case study. I like how you preface this. But yeah, this has a lot of weight to it. This stacks up very, very tightly to some really, really dark stuff. But, you know, if you're listening to the show and if you're aware of the culture which we live in, you know, we live in a dark crypto death culture. It's true. It's true. And I just thought that was so creepy because you have this government document of intelligence agencies trying to investigate satanic cults and what their beliefs are and trying to have a reference guide for why satanic cults do what they do. And here in their documentation is on this day, there might be a sacrifice of a girl between seven and 17. And as messed up as it is, that seems to be an element of this. And this is something else I wanted to throw in. We talked about the Marion air collision disaster and that the day after this, there was the other crash with John Tower. Well, when John Tower's plane crashed, his daughter was also in that plane, and her name was Marion. I mean, what the hell, man? It's funny because like, I read this stuff, so it's different when you hear something said out loud. And when I heard you say Marion, I'm like, that's Mary. Ah, yeah, potent name. Because all of this goes back to goddess worship, too, regardless of what the goddess name is. I mean, when you begin to go and tower, like, I mean, if you know anything about tarot, like the tower card, that's the scary card. That's the everything collapses card. That's the 9-11 towers coming down. And so you're beginning to see the depth at which 
And again, this is not like real first level reality. This is second level reality. You know, we just know because these symbols tie into something which is already established and we can see how strong it can be. Yes, yes. And one other detail here, because there's just so many. You have those two crashes, one after the other, one the next day after the other, and they're three miles apart along Route 30. And then almost 30 years later, more specifically, 29 years later is when Kobe crashes. And 29 years is the orbital pattern of Saturn. And one thing people did pick up on was that LeBron wrote Mamba for Life on his Nikes the night before he broke Kobe's record. Well, what is the Nike logo based on? The ring of Saturn. I don't, I don't know, man. It's, it's weird. Again, how much is conscious? How much is unconscious? Can't say, but Mamba was Kobe's nickname. He writes this on the damn shoe right next to the ring of Saturn and the 29 year cycle seemed to complete. So I'm going to bring this home to you. And that's what I think we're going to talk about in the second hour. So this might be a, a nice way to wrap it up is this is immensely personal too, because you're highlighting a part of the story I did not about like the one, two combination, like the day after the day after, and like I was aware of that, but that wasn't like a primary sort of point for me. So then we're talking about this slide, which you and I are looking at. And I was like, when was this, did this come out? And I look on the title part of it and I see that all this is, is a PDF of a copy of what was probably Xerox or scanned in. And we can see that it was time date stamped or someone stamped January 27th, 1993. And we have circled January 26th. I didn't know that. I never paid any attention to it until you brought that up. And we're talking all about like the day and the next day. And then we go and see that's like right in front of our eyes the entire time. And so that's like how real it is and also how etheric it is. It's like, oh, they're just dates. Well, yeah, but it is that real and it's popping up like, you know, this is being tapped into it. It's not so much like there's something very, very significant in your life. But when you begin to see like if it's popping up like this, where else are we connected? We don't know because we don't really understand what is the nature of this reality. But I think we're beginning to. I think all of the different things which are discussed upon your show has to do with this coming of clarity, which is going to be like the next science. We're beginning to understand really how is this set up and how do we kind of in the same way with neural pathways, how do I stop doing this unconscious stuff? How do I rewire it? Because that's what you do with the neural pathway. You want to rewire it when you see there's one that doesn't serve you. Then we need to start beginning to think of if this is true, if this is really how our reality is structured, well, then how do we rewire the stuff collectively that we don't think serves us? Hmm. Well said. Yes, there is a method to the madness, people. We are, you know, highlighting examples of how the world works so that we can then maybe use this in our own lives. But as complex as this stuff is, man, you are seriously killing it, especially during a Mercury retrograde period. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, we laid all this out and clearly I like the etheric pathways and threads analogy because that's maybe how some of this stuff works. And we see that the Kobe crash is an echo or a ripple of this crash 29 years earlier, very heavily seeped in skull and bones residue. 
I just still, I'm always driven crazy by where does it start? You know, where is the conscious action that put this in motion? And even though the Kobe crash rhymes with the, the Heinz crash, it's just like, where is the conscious ritual activity? If there is any, would it have started with crash A or, or, or B or did, did the same entity get involved perhaps and, and make two people's wishes come true? Interesting point. I'll tell you what my thought is. You know, it's just my thought. One is I think something was laid out very, very consciously with the Heinz crash. That's what Skull and Bones does. They did it ritualistically, and it had to have been done with Heinz because Heinz was part of the brotherhood. And out of respect, you're not going to go and kill the son of a known Skull and Bones member, known Bonesman, without like at least doing it with the highest honors, right? So that is definitely ritualistic magic. I would say without conscious ritualistic magic was somehow performed. Now, the Kobe thing, I think that's one level above it or one level below it, however you want to look at it. That's different, I believe. And I think that he naturally was, this is again, opinion. He was drawn to magic. We know that he was by what he said, but I think that got caught up in a nodal connection of two etheric threads. And this is how the energy like shows itself because Kobe is such a strong lightning rod and all of the different things that he has done in his life. This is how it manifested. It's like you set something in motion and then it goes in motion. So this is maybe like the end of the chain of dominoes when you push one down and they all start to come together. This was the chain of his dominoes and all built up in a very, very extraordinary way. That is my thought as relates to these two particular storylines, but you raised a bigger question. And that bigger question was like, you know, where did it all begin? And it being like it, like all of this, like your story. And this is where it's funny. Like if that's the type of question you're really interested in, you want to go deep, probably the best books that are for that are like all of these Kabbalah books. Like that's what that, that's what they're all about. People who have that question, they go and read those books. Right. And I just think about like what those books contain and some of it could be equated to like a formula. And so maybe George Bush Sr. implemented a certain formula to get what he wanted. And maybe that formula was put in Kobe's path somewhere along the way. And that's why there is such a an echo and a, a parallel to the two stories. I haven't read these books personally. I'm very particular about what I put in my consciousness now because, well, I just am. And so I don't put things in my consciousness which are beyond my understanding. So, but with that being said, from what I know about particularly the book which is associated with the rabbi of the school which Kobe's father taught at, there are warnings all over it saying, don't even read it. If you are not in sound mind and character, because this shit's going to fuck you up. Yes. Yes. And so it's like, we're working on that level. Like we got to have a respect. Like if you want to go read it, you're an adult, go and be a big boy. But like, I think part of it is also like us recognizing like, you know, there's some boxes maybe we don't want to open up to. Right. Right. I also think that's probably why these initiatory orders, of course, they want to avoid scrutiny, but they also have these, these steps, these, the systematic structure of probably building someone up to be able to even 
utilize these tools because they're they're just too damn potent. But man, like a cosmic symphony, the beats and rhythms are the same. And I'm also interested to see what happens in LeBron James' life because clearly he has a a similar talent and he injected himself in the Kobe ritual by writing that on his sneakers. And I am just curious. Only time will tell, but the story might not be fully over. Interesting points. And maybe we'll wrap up on this, but let's just go look at nicknames. Naming is so significant. Kobe nicknamed himself, which you only hear about that in MK Ultra victims, right? You know, I'm Sasha Fierce. I'm, you know, all the people who come up with alter egos, like there's a nickname and there's an alter ego. So Kobe nicknamed slash alter egoed himself Black Mamba. Right? right. Are you aware? So that's what, yes. it, that's his brand. So what is a Black Mamba? A Black Mamba is the most aggressive, deadliest snake in Africa. He named it after a character from a Quentin Tarantino film. Everything about the energy behind it is like death and aggressive death. Like not necessarily like I'm a strong killer and I can handle my own. It's like I'm going to go out and I'm destructive. Like that's a certain energy. So Kobe tied himself to that. And then you go and you look at LeBron James. What's his name? King James. Now, what's he tied to? Like, that's his nickname. He's known as King James. And separate from Kobe, remember I said Kobe had a reputation, particularly early in his career, like his teammates just didn't like him. Part of it was explained like because of his Italian upbringing and he was like more aloof. But LeBron James, he's a team favorite. Everyone has always loved LeBron James. And he's got this different type of energy. So If the story continues, my guess is I would think it would be more so about LeBron's story continuing to climb one way or the other because he's been ordained something like that. Interesting. Yes, King James, definitely a potent name for sure. Potent energy to attach yourself to. And that was given to him. Unlike Kobe, who's said to have named himself that, I believe that King James was the nickname that was bestowed upon him, which is a little bit different when you're thinking about it energetically. Hmm. Wow. (laughs) Well, I do think that is probably a good point to wrap this up on. And God, I'm just always really impressed when you bring us something like this. You do a great job of not only uncovering it, which is a whole skill in its own, but also communicating it in an audio show, which is also quite difficult. Are there... Any other events you're looking into next or or something we can maybe tease people with? Well, I don't know about events, but there are, I guess, a couple things where I can point people to go if this resonates with them and they want to get more of this flavor, this style of analysis. Sure. Well, first off is, and you know this, I did a starboard session for you. And what the starboard session is, is... I do this type of reasoning and analysis into someone's natal chart. And I look at their connection with the heavens and I'm like, okay, a story emerges. And I go and I tell a story and I do this in a really interesting way. And so if you want to hear your own life looked at like this, this is a great way to go and do it. The starboard session. And what I just recently started doing, Greg, is called the starboard plus. So you've had the starboard where I just look at your astrology. Starboard Pluses, I do like an interview and I get like all this background information 
of someone's actual story, like, you know, your experiences, you know, how many places you lived and all sorts of questions. And then I create another file. I do another video, which ties together what your astrology would suggest are the driving pathways, energetic pathways within you, and then how it has translated in your experiential life. And I help you be able to see your own life in a way which maybe you've been too close to even recognize. So that all can be found on my website, SusquehannaAlchemy.com. And then Instagram, you could go Susquehanna Alchemy on Instagram. That's the easiest place for me to put out stuff if you like this type of analysis. It's not the best because of the nature of Instagram, but it's a way which I can reach a bunch of people. There's a Facebook page, but I don't really do anything with that. I don't care for that too much. But if you really like the Instagram, I want to go deeper with this stuff and I want to be able to share it like more so than Instagram. So I started a subscribe star page and unfortunately, like no one's there yet. So I need an audience to work with. That's where I really want to go into these posts and these different stories and into like a little bit more depth than what you would see on Instagram. And what I'm going to do to sweeten the pot to get people to join is I make really, really cool stuff. Greg, maybe you could attest to it like when you saw the starboard and I make really good walking sticks and I'm going to raffle off a walking stick for anyone who's a member signed up before the Equinox, which is coming up. You know, I'm going to line my stuff up with the Equinoxes as well. And so that's motivation. If you could find more more of this stuff at the subscribe star backslash Susquehanna Alchemy and you'll be able to possibly get a really cool free stick. Also, if you're interested in that specific area, which I've highlighted, the Susquehanna River at the 40th parallel. So if you lived on the east coast of the United States, Baltimore, New York, Boston, D.C., Philly, this is just a couple hours from you. I've got a guidebook which outlines where to go and what to look for in terms of having a mystical experience, a way to like really connect with the natural world in a way which is, you know, meaningful, but then also important due to its physical location as identified in the Susquehanna mystery. (laughs) Yes, man. Beautiful, beautiful. Yes, you do make great stuff. That is exciting. Walking sticks, nice to have. And this will definitely be out by then. So I would encourage people to check out that subscribe star page. The Equinox is just uh, a few weeks away. And actually, funny enough, the day after, I have an interview with Ross Ben scheduled. So it all comes full circle. And man, uh, just a real pleasure. I'm really lucky to know you. Thanks for sharing all this with us and keep doing what you do and take care out there. Thank you for having me. Well, bend the knee, people. This is what we're all about. Michael Wan bringing the heat with what I consider another instant classic. And he's so complimentary to me, but I am not much more than a digital usher helping you find your seat before the real talent takes the THC stage. And I hope this all made sense to you guys today. I tried to just stay out of his way and follow along with the slides that he gave me which I also included in the show notes. Definitely use them if you got a little confused or if you want even more detail that we had to just gloss over. But I loved it. I used to get really frustrated with something like this because I'd obsess over, well, who did it? And you can probably hear that in my voice still with some of those last questions. 
But when we talk to the synchromystics like Michael or Chris Knowles, we often end up saying, well, this just sounds too precise for human hands. And then we think, oh, well, did some etheric entity pull the strings here? And I'm sure there's a little of both going on, especially when George Bush Sr. and Skull and Bones are involved in two crashes of people who are in positions to have dirt on them. But as Mike tried to lay out in the beginning, this also seems to just be how reality works. It's a force that's as integrated into life as whatever it is that keeps our feet on the ground. I'd say gravity, but I don't really need a dozen emails telling me that gravity isn't real. But you get the point. This just might speak to how our reality is stitched in with the etheric. We talk about portal places and ley lines. I think that's an element of it. But there might also be these energetic ley lines in the realm of thought, in the realm of the imagination. And surfing those waves creates some effects that look really strange from our human point of view. And I think surfing is actually a good analogy. Because to a surfer, the waves are coming in and out either way. High tides, low tides, and all that. It's beyond a person's control. But if a surfer has some knowledge of these waves and an expertise in reading them, they can do some pretty dramatic stuff. You know, I mentioned in the intro the idea that the universe runs on narrative, the whole Joseph Campbell, Jungian archetypes thing. It also ties into astrology somewhat, because even though it's a lot more complex than just the 12 signs, to some extent, it's like, these are the types of people. And then those qualities are filled in to different degrees in different combinations. But it's not all starting from nothing. It's like there are building blocks. There are Legos, let's say. I don't know, but I walk away from a show like this very happy, very stimulated, but I am left with more questions than I started with. I mean, when you get down to it, Mike just laid out a series of facts. There's no debate about when and where these crashes were. There's no debate about the numbers on his check, for those who heard the Plus show. It's more just being in awe of it all and trying to reverse engineer how it's possible and why these things relate, how they relate. With the Heinz crash, being so integrated with skull and bones, the magical potency of such a thing is easier to kind of get your head around. The Kobe crash, I still wonder, is this just a side effect? Residue from the original ritual? Some type of etheric ripple in the Grand Pond? Or did the process of setting up the initial crash involve some powerful spirit who basically called in their own marker 29 years later, and Kobe just made sense as the sacrificial cow, so to speak? It's just odd. Nobody is named Kobe, but the one man in existence who named his son this worked at a school named for a guy who wrote one of the deepest books on how reality is esoterically structured, and a foundational text of Judaism recounts how this book was deeply studied by high-level rabbis while a calf would be sacrificed for their meal. Then Kobe goes down on a feast day that is known for its sacrificial cow and a date that the CIA Satanics Handbook says is prime for child sacrifice as well. It's like whatever demon Skull and Bones works with is hovering over humanity like it's a goddamn Ponderosa buffet and says, mm, Ooh, I'll take that one. I don't have any idea as to what level Kobe, 
might have been aware of or done any spirit bargaining of his own, but we definitely tried to spend some time showing that he knew more about magic than it seemed on the surface. And I'm not sure exactly where we said this, maybe the second hour, but I brought up Lone Milo Decat a couple of times because I had just interviewed him as well. I put this one out first because of its relation to current events and just because I loved it so much. But I think in combination with Lon talking about how magic works, a few things apply that actually help me to make sense of it, mainly that we are in the eternal now. An idea we've heard before, that everything happens at once, or at least not in linear fashion. So technically, Kobe got his name and also crashed on a sacrificial feast day at the same time. It's all one thing. Think about Interstellar. To me, that's a great example of this. But I'm just floored. Michael Wan is seriously the man. If you only heard the first hour, what are you doing with your life? Sign up for Plus and let's get you through to the end of the movie. So many great shows in the archive, but this is one hell of a catalyst to sign up, I'd say. We tried to make sure we got through the full saga in the first hour, but in the Plus show we added several logs to the fire. We talked about Michael's personal synchronicity rabbit hole when it comes to this potent etheric thread, as well as my own. Kind of reminds me of how Chris Knowles eventually found Liz Frazier singing his own name. We also talked about Scranton, The Office, Joe Biden, John Hines, and The Bonesmen, and also how Michael sees other THC guests and topics relating to the big picture. He is a listener, which makes it easier to kind of talk about that kind of stuff. And we talked about my own insensitive Kobe tweet. I am sorry, guys. I guess I'm just broken inside, but clearly probably should have kept that to myself. But like I said, for some weird reason, I heard the news of the crash, and I had just talked to a friend who cares about basketball, who mentioned that Kobe's all-time scoring record was broken the night before, and I just felt compelled, like completely pulled towards writing what I wrote. Don't make secret cabal demon pacts for fame and fortune, or you might just die in a crash the morning after your record is broken. I was half-joking. I understand that it was, quote, too soon, even though I don't think that means much. And jokes work because they are based on some underlying truth or thought. And I even said in the Plus show that it really felt like automatic writing. And I can't prove that to anyone. But it is a single sentence tweet with two typos in it. Clearly it went from brain to page without a whole lot of proofreading. And looking back at it, to see that it was at 1226 on 126, kind of weird. I think I somehow was a conduit for this particular etheric thread because I engaged in it. And it was clearly potent based on the backlash. And just to add one other thing to the stack. Comedian Ari Shafir also tweeted an insensitive joke about Kobe. Way more aggressive and abrasive than mine but he faced the wrath of cancel culture as a result. His manager dropped him, his shows were canceled, he was doxxed and people were threatening to kill him while posting his address, and even his grandmother's address. It was crazy. So I'm sitting here on that night, high out of my mind, alone in a dark office, seeing this unfold, and I'm just like, holy shit, I was way too close to getting swept up in that. 
And you know, Ari brings it right back to THC too, because I interviewed him in my car about his attempts to make June 20th a day for mushrooms, just like April 20th is a day for weed. But the Ari thing goes a little deeper too, because on the first Shroom Fest, Ari came to San Diego. And after I did mushrooms live on a podcast that I think is gone from the internet now, I went with some local comics and my special lady to meet up with Ari and some LA comics at the condo that the comedy store owns. And I felt really privileged to be there. We're all on mushrooms, having a fine time. I am a fan of some of these guys. And I just got hit with the overwhelming sense that I was not where I was supposed to be. And I had never felt more like a poser, trying to suckle at the success teat of some comics. I ended up leaving, and me and the special lady went back to our apartment at the time, and I had a bit of a breakdown. And only she was there, but she could tell you that the message from the mushroom was, look, you might like comedy, you might even share a lot of personality traits with comics, but you are not going to be one, and this podcast you're doing, that in a lot of ways was responsible for that night, and getting this particular group of people together, is not going to be a comedy podcast if you ever want it to be successful or if you ever want to feel authentic. So to this day, I consider that night to be the turning point for THC. It's literally the moment I made the pivot that brought us to now, and Ari was a huge factor in that. So to see him face the full wrath of the internet for saying something quite similar to what I said... It just felt weird, almost a confirmation that I chose the right path many moons ago. But pay attention to this stuff in your own life. Pivotal moments, psychedelically charged insights, cycles, and the story in your journey seems like the most important thing, but I do believe you really have to live and engage with the world to experience it. You need to knock at the door. The real sick trick to the trappings of this debt-based system is that it robs you of that engagement and of your own destiny. To me, that is free will. You are completely free to think that you need more green paper and work 30 years as a farmer's insurance salesman and come home just to watch a little entertainment and start again tomorrow. The capstone cabal is completely free to try and convince you to live that life, and you're completely free to fall for it but you are being robbed of the game beneath the game. The richness of the true path and all that. But what do I know? I should probably just leave the deep insights to our guests. But either way, huge thanks to the great Michael Wan for laying this all out for us, for getting our minds working in unorthodox ways, and for doing it all with the right kind of tone. (laughs) He's the man. And thanks to all you guys for listening. I hope you had a good time with this. That's it for February. A month that starts with Chris Knowles and ends with Michael Wan is a good month to me. Do check out his subscribe star for a chance at that handcrafted walking stick too. Very cool giveaway, I would say. And I was unfamiliar with subscribe star until he mentioned it, but it looks like it is another support platform similar to Patreon. But look him up on there. And with that, I'm getting out of here. Take care of you and yours. I've done my part. Your move, esoteric crash causers, ritual workers of the earthly realm, and sorcerers of the big story. Your fucking...